This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 a Ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. On this episode, Jason Miller, a longtime spokesman and senior advisor to former President Donald Trump. You'd see the images and the pictures and, of course, being on the uh, the crew side of the equation and seeing President Trump coming down the escalator and being like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're, in, we're in a little bit of trouble here. This uh, this looks pretty legit. He's coming down with Melania, and it's just uh, it's very much the, the fabled kickoff. These days, you can find Jason Miller promoting Getter, the social media platform he founded as a competitor to Twitter, and one that he hopes will lure Trump as a user. Prior to launching this venture, Miller was an on-again, off-again, on-again spokesman and communications advisor to Trump, dating all the way back to the 2016 campaign. When I decided to move ahead with this podcast, I made it a priority to book some Republican operatives who could provide a good window into the world of GOP politics, especially GOP politics in the age of Trump. And few are in a better position to do that than Jason Miller, who, as it happens, has become something of a public figure in his own right. And now, my conversation with Jason Miller. Jason Miller, thanks so much for joining me. David, good to be with you. I wanted to talk to you about uh, your unique experience in that there are a lot of people that observe Trump, even a lot of people that, that may have worked around Trump uh, over the past few years, whether you're a member of Congress or um, a part of the White House staff, but you were with him on the campaign, you were with him in the post-presidency, and your specialty has always been communications. And of course, so much about Trump is about how he communicated. And that's kind of what I wanted to explore with you today on In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. When you first worked for Trump in 2016, you came over from the Ted Cruz campaign. Um, Ted Cruz had been ultimately the former president's biggest rival. He was the runner-up for the nomination. Um, and of course, Trump doesn't play patsy with his enemies, and you, you had worked for, at that time, enemy number one. What was your first interview with Mr. Trump like when you were about to go work on his 2016 campaign after the cruise effort had ended. So the the first sit down with President Trump, and keep in mind going back to 2011, if President Trump had run in the 2012 cycle, I was going to be the manager. So I'd had a little bit of experience kind of through the, the Rudy Giuliani connections going further back. I worked on Rudy's presidential in 2008, and prior to that had managed races for House and Senate and governor, been a chief of staff on Capitol Hill. So I'd, I'd done some things politically before, but the Rudy experience led to the potential Trump experience. And then obviously I didn't think that he was going to run. 
in 2016. Uh, obviously, I was I was wrong there, so I signed up early with Ted Cruz, and then about a month after Ted exiting the race following Indiana uh, in the beginning of uh, of May, there uh, went and um, got the invite to come and chat with President Trump in New York, and it really kind of a, a surreal setting. I remember coming up to uh, to Trump Tower, and it's that uh, I'd never been inside Trump Tower before, and you know, you'd see the images and the pictures, and of course, being on the uh, the crew side of the equation, I'd seen President Trump coming down the escalator and being like, "Uh oh, <laughs> we're in we're in a little bit of trouble here. This uh, this looks pretty legit. He's coming down with Melania, and it's just." Uh, it's very much the the fabled kickoff, um, but coming up to floor twenty six, and it, it kind of felt like you're on set with The Apprentice. But you had, um, you know, much in the same way that I think the early days uh, of the Oval Office have been described. But it's a, a very much kind of an open door policy. You had uh, his adult children there. You had all the players: Stephen Miller, Hope Hicks. Um, uh, you had people kind of you know coming in and out. There's uh, maybe a Michael Cohen sighting, um, which is a little bit uh, a little bit unique. Um, I that was the the first time that I got brought into uh, actually met Paul Manafort, who was still in, on board at that time. And I remember I was sitting down um, and uh, with Paul and uh, look, I was on Ted's team in the primary. And so um, I'm not exactly known to play uh, uh, patty cake uh, myself. So I sat down with Paul. I was like, hey, just so you know, I, I just don't want to ever you know, get back to you. Like I, I, I sliced you up a couple of times and uh, um, when you go on TV and such. Um, and I remember Manafort just looked and goes, ah, OK, well, just my only request is uh, now if we're on the team together that you don't do it to me anymore. <laughs> I kind of laughed and said, that's good. But uh, but in sitting down with President Trump, it, it very much uh, it, it was it was like it was like an audition uh, in a sense. And it's, uh, you know, every, every, in a lot of ways, it's very much about the presentation. It's about the delivery. And when the early conversations with Jared Kushner that I had, he made very clear, uh, look, we're bringing you on because you can adapt because you can, you know how to go and amplify president Trump's or then Mr. Trump's message. It's not about, I think too many people that are say in communications or in politics right now think that uh, maybe it's because they've they've watched a couple too many episodes of the west wing they think if uh, this is all about writing some great flowery prose and it's putting their ideas in the mouth of some principal that's not what the, a job like that is about what the what the job is about is figuring out the most creative way the smartest way to go and help a candidate or uh, someone whose name's on the door deliver their message, uh, how to do it in a unique way, how to have it cut through, how to have the the least amount of blowback uh, is possible. Uh, but also, but with President Trump, the thing that's different is you really had to take, at least in my aspect, two decades of political experience before, in a sense, throw it out the window and think, okay, is this the, am I thinking this because it's the, the way we've always done it, because it's the Washington way? or because this will actually help President Trump advance the agenda. So uh, it was a different experience than anything I've ever done before. I want to ask you about what it was like to work for him, but I wanted to try to drill down in in that interview and, and see how he approached you, because you had worked for Senator Cruz, and you were now coming over to work for him. Um, how much of a hard time did he give you, or was he... And I think this would be interesting for people who have followed him, but but haven't really had a, a sense of who he is when the camera isn't on him. Or was he as simple and professional as you were good at what you did for him? I need somebody as long as you'll be loyal to me. That's fine. 
Yeah, I think the the, the main uh, the main question there really was uh, where I was going to stack up as far as you know, was I still like a you know secret Ted Cruz mole uh, within the operation, or uh, who is I on board for? But it's a lot of that was a lot of that was alleviated by the simple fact that. Ken Kirsten, uh, who is very close with Jared Kushner and a former business partner of mine, uh, not just at Jamestown, but then also at Teneo as well, uh, someone who I've been friends with all the way going back to the Giuliani campaign, uh, and and really with Jared having come in and kind of laying down the groundwork. And so uh, as long as I kind of passed his test and he asked me my opinion on a couple of different stories that were happening that day and how I'd deal with it and push back, um, uh, having Jared's seal of approval really kind of got it done. So it, was, uh, it wasn't quite as, uh, wasn't quite as tough as I, I, I thought it uh, could have been. Interesting. Were you surprised at how the former president conducted himself on the 2016 campaign as it unfolded while you were working for Senator Cruz, or is that would what we would have seen? Do you think had he run in 2012? That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that before. It's, I think that, I think he probably would have been very similar in 2012. Uh, and I think that, um, because you had, you had the great foils and where he's always uh, done the president Trump's always done the best is when he has the great foil. And so of course that stretch, you had Obama going for his first reelectors. President Trump says uh, a race that anyone on the planet other than Mitt Romney would have won, um, which he's not entirely that far off on um, in my opinion. But I think there, he obviously he would have had his great foil. He had his great foil uh, with crooked Hillary in, uh, in 2016, that was that was one of the things that, that really escaped us in 2020. I mean, Joe Biden was not a great foil. I mean, Joe Biden is the um, uh, I mean, look, uh, just the fact that his big Afghanistan press conference is at 345 in the afternoon because uh, he wakes up late. He goes to bed early. Um, uh, you know, he's just very feeble in his approach. Uh, we could never make Joe Biden a villain. We could never make him the great foil. Uh, that was one of the things that really bedeviled us during uh, during that campaign. But I think if he had run in 2012, it would have been pretty similar to uh, would have been pretty similar to how he, he ran it in 2016. Interesting. I, you know, I think for a lot of people that have watched um, the former president from the outside looking in, especially if all you really know on a daily basis or monthly basis are the tweets or now the statements in this era of the Twitter ban for him, you might imagine that he walks around either the White House or his office at Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster, his country club in New Jersey, and screams at staff and is constantly threatening to fire people, if not outright firing people, um, because he's unhappy with maybe how things are going or how his staff is handling the incoming that he uh, so often has to deal with. What was it like once you were on the campaign and then again on the campaign in 2020? What is it like working for him uh, directly as you did versus maybe what people think it's like to work for him? I think there are um, a couple of things. One, expectations are very, very high. Um, you really need to have um, your A game together. And I think having worked for a couple of larger than life characters uh, in the past, whether it be Rudy Giuliani or Mark Sanford, for example, um, folks who very much force their staff to think critically, uh, I think um, really helped with regard to, to President Trump. You know, one of the things is that 
if you're in the room with President Trump, you're expected to have an opinion and you're expected to have a good opinion. Um, his is not an orbit that really rewards wallflowers. Uh, your people need to, uh, to really know what's going on. You need to be the other thing, too, is uh, you need to be aware of what's going on kind of with all things at all times. So when we do our morning calls, whether it be in 2016 or even going in 2020, obviously, as in a more senior capacity in 2020. But in 2016, just because I was more focused on communications, I still had to know what was going on with his schedule, what was going on with big endorsements, um, what was uh, what was going on uh, with the media, what was coming up with our future rollouts or speeches. You're basically expected to know everything that was going on. And so uh, very much a, a he's very high expectations. Uh, think critically, um, uh, look around corners, uh, think of the question that hasn't yet been asked. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the the biggest things. But I think it's also, too, it's a uh, I think one of the biggest misnomers uh, with President Trump is that uh, maybe that he he doesn't take advice or doesn't take suggestions. Now, the it's a little bit like Fight Club. Uh, first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. And so you never want to say that you're the person who you know wrote something for him or um, or who, uh, you know, is, is uh, doing some of the work, um, you know, maybe to help him out. Uh, but again, your job in that in that role is figure out how you get him more coverage. I get, get him even better coverage um, as you go through. But if you have a good idea, he'll take good ideas from anyone. Um, he just uh, he, he needs to be well thought out. But oh, he'll he'll, he'll take good ideas and suggestions all the time. Did he ever say anything that made you cringe? And did you tell him so? Define cringe. Something that you said, sir, you, you thought to yourself, you just can't say that. That is going to cause our campaign so many problems. That is going to be so counterproductive to your agenda. What the heck was he thinking? Oh, of course. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> of course. And that, you know, conversations we'd have at 630 or 730 in the morning. Uh, but, I, but I think there are various, uh, look, there are various gradations of cringe, right? So there might be, um, look, I'm the sounding board. And so sometimes he, if he wants to get my reaction, but there's a difference between what I, what I would try to do is try to figure out here's where he's trying to go with his messaging or, or with, with his approach. And so uh, maybe initially a couple of the, a uh, couple of things that uh, I might have a little bit of the cringe. Then I realize I might come back to him and say, okay, so what you're trying to achieve is you want to push uh, influence variable X um, to then impact variable Y to then here's the result you want it, it, Z. And so kind of figuring out, okay, what are you trying to get at? And and sometimes I say, look, if you want to go and, and light it up flamethrower style, this is exactly, uh, this will accomplish that task. Uh, or sometimes maybe I'd say, look, I think you can get just as dynamic uh, of a reaction, uh, but focus the flamethrower uh, at this target vote versus that target. Uh, you'll get all of the all the upside of getting the splash and being um, outside the box and being a non-politician uh, without any of the uh, uh, the backdraft, so to speak. Um, so it's is I got to understand him and realize that uh, in many ways I'd be that kind of the early sounding board uh, for how we do this. I'd, I'd work through and kind of give him the recommendations, uh, knowing that a lot of times things were thrown at me intentionally inflammatory. <laughs> Uh, to try to get my reaction. And uh, uh, so that's, uh, so we had a kind of a unique relationship on that front. Um, on the flip side, you know, we have had lofty communicators before. I think he was a unique communicator and it, modern day presidential. Yeah. <laughs> One way to put it. You clearly can't say though, that it wasn't effective at times. It was clearly effective in the 2016 campaign and it was effective at times in the presidency. What was it about his unusual 
unusually blunt style that connected at least with the right voters in the right places, often at the right time. I think it's the, you know, one of the biggest applause lines that he would get in 2016 is when he would talk about when he would rail against the failed foreign policies of the politicians from both parties, Democrats and Republicans. And beating up on the George W. Bush or the McCain's was just as effective as beating up on the uh, the Obamas and the Clintons. And part of that is because what the 2016 campaign exposed uh, was this massive disconnect between the grassroots conservatives around the country and the the Washington elites, kind of the power brokers within the party who are, excuse me, so disconnected um, from the the people that they were uh, purported to um, to represent. And so uh, I remember being with Cruz at one point in the the 2016 primary. And this is, this is back in like 2015 and uh, Trump had jumped in. I think it was talking about the, in fact, it was talking about the wall and uh, Ted was, Ted was fired up and he was like, wait a minute, this guy came out of nowhere. He's talking about the wall. And uh, you know, how come uh, we're not getting, you know, I'm, I've actually gone and fought for this before. And I mean, in fact, I, I sponsored, and I, I'm not doing justice to it, but basically I led a subcommittee hearing talking about additional wall funding uh, I've actually done something on the wall. Uh, this guy hasn't done anything with it. Um, uh, why can't we get any coverage from like this subcommittee hearing or something that lines? And I realized kind of right at that moment that the arguably before President Trump jumped in the race, Ted Cruz was the most non-politician, anti-establishment um, candidate with a real chance to win the nomination that we've had in modern presidential history before Donald Trump. So we're talking about kind of that March to June type window in there. And what I realized is that is Senator Cruz was was talking through and using words such as subcommittee or legislation that what uh, that uh, the the what Donald Trump was bringing to it was so much further removed from being a politician that that's really what people wanted. People wanted that rejection really of both parties, even Republicans. Maybe they might not say I'm rejecting the Republican Party. What they didn't want was was a politician. I think when you talk about President Trump's style, it's the fact that he hasn't been doing this for 20, 25 years, or at least in in the tra- traditional Washington thinking. Or here's here's what a statement is supposed to look like. Here's um, um, you know, whose rear end you need to kiss here, are the, uh, the political, um, uh, you know, uh, delicateness all around a situation. He came and talked very much like a regular person. I think that, um, is such a unique style, uh, that, and quite frankly, I think because that, that put him in a position to win Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, I firmly believe if we had, um, even if Senator Cruz had won the primary in 2016, or uh, maybe it had been someone else, maybe it had been, um, you know, uh, at that time, Senator Rubio, um, or even, you know, Jeb Bush or anyone, I don't think any of those Republicans could have won Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania. I mean, you had to have someone who's not defined as a Republican politician to have a chance to win Democrats and independents like that. There's sort of an ongoing debate about whether President Trump was instinct or strategy or a mixture. Um, what was it? Both. It's all rolled up into one uh, with him. His uh, uh, his uh, his his strategy really is his his gut instinct. Um, uh, but that and- suggests, and I just want to drill down into this. That suggests that he doesn't. It doesn't mean that he's not thoughtful. It just would mean to me that he doesn't put a lot of thought into the moves he makes or the things that he says that he's got a gut feel in the moment and he runs with it versus playing out 
plan B, plan C, consequence A, consequence B. And I'm just trying to get a sense for what you saw. So it's, it's, I don't think you can, I think you're, uh, I think you're putting in too much of a, a, a binary choice construct um, okay. in kind of the, uh, you know, is it strategy or is it just, uh, or is it just gut? I mean, his, his gut takes is very much his, his hot takes is um, uh, those things are all um, uh, trial ballooned and focus grouped uh, in his own way, uh, most always before he goes and delivers those. And so it's very rare, very rare. Uh, that even today that I'll hear him go and deliver a line publicly that I haven't heard him say several times before. And that, that's one of the things where, you know, if I uh, if I hear him deliver a line, I'm like, hey, you know what, here's a slightly different tweak you can put on it. I think it'd make it even more effective. Uh, or if say there's like a, you know, a factual, um, uh, you know, uh, I need to, you know, put a little more context on something or a factual correction or something like that. I'll always say something right away because uh, you can tell when he's in kind of his focus group um, mode of testing lines out with people. Uh, so he, he'll get from people who he respects uh, or people who he thinks represent um, uh, represents, you know, demographics or coalitions of people that could make up uh, a group of supporters. He'll definitely go and test things out um, to uh, he'll go and test things out before um before going to delivering. So there's, there's more thought than you'd think, but it's, it's not quite the binary construct uh, as you initially laid out. Interesting. So there are, um, as you know, a laundry list of Republicans interested in running for president in 2024. So much of in Trump shadow, uh, my forthcoming book is about that. Um, and I know that president Trump may choose to run again. What I wanted to explore with you is how, other Republicans can take President Trump's fighting spirit, if you will, and still seem authentic to Republican voters who want that sort of spirit when none of them are him, meaning they don't have a reality television background. They're not going to be given um, the liberties to act outside of a political box uh, the way Trump was given by the voters. And they just simply don't have his, some may call it panache, some may call it uh, uh, pugilistic style. They've got to find a way to do this in their own authentic way. And I feel like that's going to be very difficult for them. Yeah, no, I think that's a spot on observation. That's why I'm, I'm very much looking forward to your book coming out, because I uh, we see various points of it uh, right now. Some folks are trying to do the um, uh, kind of a shadow 2024 campaign uh, doing, say, the the mechanics uh, behind the scenes of if I do these interviews or I do these speeches, uh, this is kind of the traditional way things have always been done, uh, kind of the early spade work, so to speak, uh, that can kind of keep me in the game. Some folks are trying to go at it from a, uh, a policy standpoint. You know, I'm the um, uh, you know, the ideological uh, successor to President Trump. Here's how I'm going to go and advance his agenda. And actually, that's not even a excuse me, that's not even a, a, such a clean, no one has a lock on his agenda. So maybe some people are doing it more on the, um, the economic populist side. Maybe some are doing more on the, uh, the foreign policy, um, side, but then you also, um, uh, where I think really the, uh, I think the person who's probably doing it the best so far is, is probably governor DeSantis. And I think from that aspect of being the, uh, uh, 
being the outsider, being the contrarian, being the one who's picking the fights with the media. Um, now, I mean, if, if you went and, and asked me, hey, what are some of Governor DeSantis' greatest policies? Um, I'd say most people, if you, you know, uh, in Florida, just off the street, probably say, oh, you know, he's good about keeping the economy open or uh, fighting with the media on on masks uh, or, or different things like that. Um, you probably wouldn't go through, uh, probably wouldn't have, a, they might know of his fights against the media, uh, which has endeared him greatly. I and mean, I can tell you from polling that I've done, uh, even as uh, forgetters, I've gone through to, to rank out some of the, uh, who the biggest influencers are uh, for prospective gets that we want to get to our platform, um, that uh, Governor DeSantis is is by far clear and away the the number one uh, person. Um, uh, so I think everyone's going to try kind of a different style. But I think the uh, uh, picking the fights with people, uh, picking some of the common enemies that President Trump has, probably the smartest way uh, for people to do it. Because uh, I don't think just saying, "Hey, I've locked into this policy," or "I'm giving speeches at this dinner," uh, will necessarily have people say, oh, "Okay, well, that's clearly the the Trump successor." Uh, but if President Trump were to not run, and I think Governor DeSantis at this moment is probably doing the the smartest things to keep himself in the conversation. Interesting. I also feel like President Trump, whether <laughs> purposely or not, it creates problems for some of his Republican allies in Congress, because if you're in a position, a governing position in Congress and you're a Republican, even if you're in the majority, which they're not at the moment that we're speaking, you eventually have to compromise somewhere with somebody. There's There are 60 votes required in the Senate. If you have a majority, um, usually it means the tent's bigger. And so you've got to deal with Northeastern Republicans versus Southern Republicans. Everybody's got their own parochial agenda because they want their voters at home to keep sending them back. And, and President Trump's brand is very pure. He fights. Even when he compromises, he tells everybody how much he hates it and he'll never do it again. And the voters buy that. But when you're a normal politician, and that's basically everybody on the Republican side who isn't him, and and particularly if you're in Washington, you're you're constrained one way or the other. Voters end up comparing you to him and you never stack up. And it's always a problem. Was that anything that he was ever aware of? Did he ever say to himself, God, these guys are really screwed because they can't do what I do? Oh, he was definitely aware of it uh, and, and still is aware uh, of it now. Uh, and, and I think that the uh, a lot of that goes back to social media. Uh, and I think that's why uh, there's such this interest about what he does next. Obviously, I'll make an effort to try to get him to the, the getter platform. Uh, but it's his way of going around the media in his just this massive social media following. Um, and I think that's the uh, that's the. Um, that's why I think the deplatforming uh, was such a big deal. And I think that's also the reason why you saw the collusion to, hey, um, you know, whether it be uh, Facebook or uh, Twitter, you know, whomever to go and try to uh, kneecap him because people realized that was his superpower, uh, that, that he could just go above and beyond where nobody else in, uh, uh, in politics has a social media following like that. Was the deplatforming a, a big blow to him in terms of his ability to control the debate? and succeed politically so the deplatforming. keep in mind the actual deplatforming happened uh after the election was already over and so Correct. um but that being said that we saw the uh whether it be the the political uh discrimination that we saw where uh the hunter biden story the laptop story was locked down we saw with the 
the the temporary suspensions or the uh, different things that would pop up with the Facebook warnings, uh, those types of, of things that would make it sound like uh, anything President Trump was saying was misinformation, uh, which uh, most of the time is just code for someone in Silicon Valley doesn't like your political perspective on things, uh, which is something we very much avoid uh, with Getter. Um, but uh, looking ahead to 2024, uh, where I think as of this moment, I think President Trump runs. Um, I think he, even though he has not said the magic words behind the scenes, he sounds like someone who's running. Uh, you think he's running? Uh, I, I think that he he very much sounds like somebody who's running. Uh, again, he has not used those words with me. Uh, but if you're if you're having just the casual conversation, it's a different conversation than it was six months ago. Um, uh, there's a there's a lot more 2024 talk, uh, a lot more forward focus. Uh, it just it very much sounds like he's running. I want to ask you about Getter in a moment because I'm very interested in your the new platform that you founded. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, before I get there, ask you ab- about the president's brand. If there's anything um, that I think he feels made him and that other Republicans feel made him, it's that he's an unqualified fighter. He'll fight me. He'll fight you. He'll fight anybody. He likes you. Maybe he doesn't like me. He'll fight us both. If the media actually gave him the fair shake he claims he deserves and never gets, I feel like he'd fight with the media anyway because he likes it and he's comfortable doing it and it's good for his brand. I mean, it's never going to happen. So I mean, that's like, look, I'd like to be six four and two hundred pounds, but you know, uh, that's not going to happen either. So uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, uh, I don't see a snare where that that would ever happen. So in lieu of that, I think we should expect it as as long as he's on. Uh, uh, as long as he's in the uh, in the public eye, you're going to see him fight. How did you see Don Jr. evolve over the course of the five or six years of the campaign of the two campaigns and the administration? Yeah, good question, because, uh, look, Eric, uh, you know, Eric stayed back and, and ran the business. Uh, Jared Navanka came into uh, the White House. Um, obviously Tiffany was finishing up law school at, uh, at Georgetown, um, Baron obviously still in, um, uh, you know, one point was in middle school and then into, uh, into high school. And then Don Jr. I, I think that's a really good analysis. What you say about how he's kind of grown into this, you know, kind of more naturally, uh, than anybody else. And, and I think there are a number of things that are kind of Don's personality. I mean, keep in mind, not only does Don have the last name of Trump, uh, so you get a certain, uh, you know, a certain education that comes with that. Excuse me. Don's also Don's also kind of the rebellious one. And uh, I think that uh, in many ways, kind of Don's years of uh, all the outdoor activities, the hunting, doing things in the woods, uh, you know, the, the fishing, doing things very not um uh, you know, doing things very not in a, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue uh, type of way. Uh, I think some of that rebellious spirit, uh, I think really connected him with a lot of people in the way that, you know, when you think about President Trump, I think kind of where that kind of that, that lunch pail, kind of that blue collar uh, ethos, uh, so to speak, comes from uh, is it a kid or a young man walking around with his father to construction sites. And you'd see, you know, that's where kind of the, uh, you know, I've, I've brought this up before, people kind of roll their eyes a little bit, but uh, at heart, uh, President Trump does view himself as kind of lunch pail Don, uh, that this is the blue collar Don, that this is the guy who actually could show you how to, to build an A-frame. This is someone who could give you a, which he's done before. He's given me like a 10, 15 minute explanation about here's how you get an even pour uh, with concrete when you're building a building, who really knows the granular details when it comes to construction. 
but he would very much, uh, President Trump would relate to blue collar workers and people who have to get their hands dirty. Uh, I think Don uh, Jr., I think his uh, his affinity for being an outdoorsman, um, uh, I think kind of gave him a, a certain connection, a certain street cred uh, with folks in middle America. And then you kind of get the, you know, the combined, uh, you know, Trump bravado and kind of the, the, the fighter instinct that's come through. And uh, Don really is, I mean, uh, he, I think it's a great observation. He's probably the most natural fit uh, as a Republican leader of, of any of the, anyone in the Trump family. And I think um, if you ask him and, and, and I've asked him, uh, look, in private, like, okay, Don, give me a sense. Like, you know, what are you thinking here for the long term and, and this kind of stuff? He keeps his cards pretty close. Uh, I mean, I, I have a good relationship with uh, uh, with Don and, and talk with him somewhat frequently. Uh, but he he look he is very mindful and cognizant um, that hey, uh, as as long as um, as long as uh, my dad's thinking about running again for for president. I'm just going to kind of bide my time and think through things. Uh, but it's, uh, he's, uh, he still has his own political future. Um, the chapters for which have not yet been written. Do you think that he eventually runs for something? Yes. Um, I don't know when that is or where that is. Um, but, uh, I think so. I mean, he's, he's just, he's too talented. Uh, he's too talented of a communicator. Uh, I think he has, um, uh, the one thing is that uh, Don Jr. Um, look, Don Jr. for someone who who you know well, was born into pretty decent uh, circumstances, um, you know he's a, the you know probably just a, a little uh, just a little more probably come to him and uh, you know um, uh, in his inheritance than you know say coming to mine. Um, but he is not he is not a materialistic person. He's not someone who uh, wants to see his name necessarily in, in big flashy lights. Uh, but I think he's I think he's self-aware of the the power that the last name brings that he's been able to build this own platform of his own. Uh, he will be uh, look, I've said this before. He's kind of the um, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, he's kind of the the emotional core of the mega movement. Uh, he is uh, he is as integral to the uh, to the overall movement um, as anybody else. And I, I think that uh, I think he will do something. I just don't know what that is. Uh, and, and trust me, I've tried to pry it out of him. Uh, but even in the the one on one conversations, he's just he he's he's smart. He knows, hey, as long as as long as my dad's thinking about doing this, I'm going to keep the the cards really close to the vest. Um, but uh, I, I think we'll see some some cool things from him down the road. Talk to me about Getter, and I should preface this: you know, there's so much going on. <laughs> Plus, I have little kids. I didn't actually look at it until a, a couple of hours before we spoke. So I went to Getter. I signed up for Getter. And um, it, it asked me, I wanted to use my Twitter handle, which is where I try to use on every social media platform. And it said if I had it on Twitter, I could claim it. So I did. And it looks visually to me a lot like Twitter. Um, so what's is it a Twitter alternative or is there a lot more to it? And, and what should people know about it? Uh, yeah, so uh, Getter is new free speech platform, um, fastest growing social media uh, platform in history. We got to a million users in only three days, uh, got to a million and a half users um, in uh, a little over a week, and then we're just about two million users right now. Uh, I would say that most folks say uh, that the um, optics wise, uh, they probably use the, the Twitter comparison more. But I would say when you talk about some of the upcoming features we're going to have, I think you know, there'll be a lot more in the, the Facebook space as we start. 
uh, really as we build out the community uh, with the the platform and um, and start adding different things, whether it's the online appreciation, uh, the online tipping, uh, the ability to do different things with coalitions and with friends that you do on Facebook, maybe as opposed to, to Twitter. Uh, but the reason why most people go to social media platforms to connect with friends and family, and then also to get news. And that's, uh, that's really kind of the two main reasons why people go on and, and follow other people who they kind of their, their digital ecosystem, so to speak. Our principles with Getter, really twofold. One, uh, that we support free speech. And that two, we oppose cancel culture. And that's it. We want people from all um, uh, ideologies, all backgrounds, all nations. Uh, if you believe in these two main principles, we want you to join the platform. And so far, 50% of our growth has been here in the U.S. 50% has been international, with 15% of that uh, being uh, being in Brazil. So we've, we have President Bolsonaro and two of his three adult sons on the platform. So we've seen uh, good growth uh, that's already taken off. Um, that's already taken off with that. Uh, and really, the, uh, the platform itself, 777 characters, three minute videos, in-app video editing, the ability to import um, your tweets because uh, that's your uh, that's your content, uh, that's your intellectual property that you can bring with you, and so a lot of cool features. Just it's it's smoother, it's cleaner, it's less mucked up. Uh, it just it's a great looking platform. And I say to everyone, that, look, create a Getter account. It's free. Take you a few seconds to go and do. Uh, come check it out. I think you're going to like some of the people, some of the different voices that you see on there. And have you made the decision? to not censor any group, any point of view, any individual with particular points of view that may otherwise be abhorrent? I mean, is it just a principle of getter? And obviously this gets to be very subjective, and I understand that given what has happened to President Trump and how people feel about Facebook and, and the heat they've come under. But is this your approach to getter? Is that if you can sign up if you have the capacity to sign yourself up for it, you can use it and communicate what you will. And we are simply a platform. Uh, so uh, not uh, well. a couple of things with regard to political censorship. That's something that we oppose. And I don't care if you're left to center, if you're right to center, where you are. Uh, I'll frequently, somewhat frequently repost uh, people tell me that I'm uh, number one New York style. Um, just so people realize that, yeah, there are uh, you, you can join the platform and you don't have to be right to center. You can be someone who very much uh, uh, has a different set of values. Um, but we do have a, a proactive and robust moderation strategy. The, it's really two-pronged. It has both a, an AI component as well as a human component. And that's because there are certain community standards that we have to have. Uh, for example, you can't walk into a restaurant in real life and threaten someone physically or hurl racial epithets and for there not to be consequences and ramifications. Same thing in this this digital town square. We can't have people, if we're going to have a, a safe environment for people to uh, exchange ideas, you know, your free speech rights really extend right up to the point where they start to infringe on someone else's free speech rights or infringe on their their safety or their own liberties. Uh, and so that's very much something that we keep in the, the back of our minds. But but there's no such thing as um, uh, political discrimination or political jail like you see with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and some of these other outlets. Uh, and so we, we do make sure, again, that we uh, with whether it's the AI or the human moderation, uh, that we don't allow certain, say, graphic images to be posted. Um, that's something that we that we take very seriously. Um, but uh, but of course, uh, there's a difference between that, which I don't think is political free speech, uh, and uh, the reality of uh, making sure that we have a platform 
people can can say what they want politically and don't have to worry about uh, some big tech uh, giant coming and saying, yeah, we like free speech, but just not your free speech. Jason Miller is the founder of Getter, a new social media platform. He's a longtime advisor to former President Donald Trump. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. David, thank you very much. and I can't wait to see the book. Scott Emmergut is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP, is available for purchase wherever books are sold. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.